0: Welcome to the 58th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I am Mercedes.
1: And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where we discussed the kidnapping and murder of Marty Mindy by the Kills on Top Brothers. Our show is often
0: horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime. But we must warn you, sometimes we will make jokes and laugh during our
1: podcast. Want to learn more about us? Visit our website at itwesntmetruecrime.com to find links to our social media pages. We drop a new episode every Friday morning. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening. And if you even are slightly entertained by our Southern charm, leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. If not, reach out to us and let us know how we can improve. Also, please recommend our podcast to your friends and family. Share the love. All right, Cindy, how's it going? It's going. How you doing out. this week? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I'm
0: so confused about my days. I love it. I yes, love we're it. Recording a little, a little at the yeah, at the time well, at the, of the, we need to... the midnight hour, right? Mm-hmm. On the yes. midnight oil. Yeah. Wow. yeah. This is a long one, so you just want to jump in pretty quick yep let's do it okay here we go so this week we are going back to 1987 to warwick Rhode island to the buttonwoods neighborhood where a serial killer terrorized the established seaside community of lower to upper middle class families
1: Uh uh-oh i bet they love that
0: yeah i mean it's pretty frightening because we kind of have an eclectic neighborhood around here that we have actually we went to yesterday That kind of reminds me a little bit of this type of neighborhood. I got a lot of my information for this episode from newspaper articles, court records, and then an old paperback, by the way, that I ended up paying $21 for. It was called A Call for Justice. So if you want to borrow it, I have it. Okay, $21 for a paperback. So um, I got a lot of my information from Denise Lang. The book is okay. I mean, she uses, she kind of tries to turn it into, um, kind of like a true 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 fiction but true what did what did he write real life fiction uh, non or something like historical fiction um more like in cold blood where he like took this documentary and then put feelings and stuff into the killers and the victims
1: Just, and, uh, and drama- dramatization
0: yeah there's a word for it that is eluding me right now so I'm gonna keep moving forward Okay, so I'm going to start by telling you about Becky Spencer, and she lived in this neighborhood, Buttonwoods neighborhood, at 60 Inez Avenue. She rented a home with her daughter and um, her son and her brother, Carl, and his son. Their lease was up on July 31st, 1987, so she was packing up the house while Carl was at work and sleeping because he slept during the day, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Okay. She made arrangements with her ex-husband to take the kids for the night so that she could pack up before the big move. He did arrive fairly early in the morning to pick up the children. And after he left, Becky and her best friend started packing up the family home. After packing for most of the, m- the morning, the two went to the bank where Becky took out 80 bucks to pay for her storage bill. And then they returned to the home at around 6 p.m., where Becky cooked dinner for herself, her friend, and her brother, Carl. Carl had just recently been discharged from the army and he worked at the graveyard shift as a security guard. So, you know, he would sleep during the day and then you know get up eat dinner hang out with the children before going to work. Becky's best friend told police that the evening was pleasant and then around half past eight Carl left for a security guard job. Shortly after that her friend's boyfriend arrived to help pack and move stuff. The three packed up a few more Becky's belongings before taking a break to go out for ice cream and their journey for ice cream would have only been around half an hour but they Didn't go home right away. They were out for about two hours driving around. They bought cigarettes. They talked. They stopped at her friend's boyfriend's house so that he could let his dog out. And then by 11 p.m. she was getting tired. So they went back to her home and they packed up more stuff for about 30 minutes before they left. Once they left, Becky changed into a lilac nightgown and laid down on the living room floor with a blanket. And police believe that she had fallen asleep while watching television and while she was sleeping soundly in her own living room on her own living room floor. Someone snuck into her home, maybe even watched her sleep. This someone used one of her kitchen knives to violently stab her 58 times, puncturing her heart, liver, lungs, face, and head. Because it had to be a guy based on the sheer violence and strength of it all, then snuck out of the house into the night. Police, wait. That's a good grief. I know, overkill, right? Police believe the killer had entered through the back door, perhaps climbing over the neighbor's fence into Becky's backyard. She had been asleep, and no one heard any screaming. No, none of the neighbors heard any screaming. So it wasn't until the next morning when her brother Carl returned home from work that Becky was found lying in a pool of her own blood.
1: He probably didn't even have, like, I mean, he's, the person probably stabbed her, but like, in the midst of her sleeping, and so she never even... I mean, hopefully the first stab like it, you know,
0: right. Well, kill. I'm going to kind of address that okay. kind of in a minute. Oh, well, okay. So when Carl got there, he called 911 and then he was attempting CPR. He had the training in the army. So as soon as he dialed 911, he uh, attempted to resuscitate her. The detective on the case, a lead investigator on the case, Detective Hornoff, remembers that 911 call because it was so strange. He said, whoever made the call reported a possible suicide by stabbing, but Hornoff's thinking, you know, who commits suicide by stabbing themselves repeatedly?
1: Yeah. Repeatedly, you know, we're not like once we, are not because apparently they used the repeatedly
0: and I'm not sure, you know, I didn't see actually a transcript of the 911 call. This is based on what I read in the book. So when he walked into the crime scene, he immediately knew that this was no suicide. It was a murderous bloodbath. Mm-hmm. police had immediately surrounded the home with crime scene tape and began collecting um, evidence from the home before the detective got there. When he did get there, he noticed that responding officers had Carl Beatty, Batty, the brother handcuffed in the back seat of a squad car. You know, he's bloody, he's covered in his sister's blood. He did the 911 call. And when Hornoff went in and um, to look at Becky's body, he noticed that first of all, she was still warm to the touch and her body was still oozing blood so it was not that hadn't happened that long ago so you know they're like who could do this could the brother have been capable of such overkill could he have killed his sister in such a gruesome manner so police doubted it but of course he's still a suspect they're still going to take him in for questioning right Uh, they quickly determined that he he was telling the truth he had arrived home to find his sister dead on the living room floor He had called 911 and he had tried CPR to no avail. He said he had no idea who could have done this to his sweet, kind little sister. He, um, and then they contacted her ex-husband and ex-husband had a solid alibi. So he was quickly eliminated as a suspect. So he
1: probably like just missed whomever this was. Right. Could have happened. Right. Wow. That's what scares me about, you know, like I've been trying to sell some of our old furniture. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so I have to give them the code to get in to the neighborhood. Right. And there's not like an alternative code that, or like a, you know, a, right. only works once or twice or something like right. that. And then I'm, you know, do, you know, what if they, oh, I like the way her house looks, you know, maybe we'll come back. I'm always afraid that someone else is going to try to like come back right. at night and like break in or, you know. Right especially because my husband's not here during the day right now while I am, you know, Oh, is she single? Is she, you know, just got, you
0: know, your house is kind of nice because your windows are higher up. Like somebody couldn't just come behind your bushes and peek in your windows. Like, Mm you know, so that's a little bit better, but still, still, I mean, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, we got that, you know, we, we live in a decent neighborhood. We've got that really nice neighborhood up, excuse me, up the street. But then the one, just on the other side of the canal is, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, there are some shady characters and the police are in and out of there.
0: Probably has shady characters in your own neighborhood. Yeah. You just don't know it.
1: Well, we don't have a police substation in our neighborhood. There's one no, behind us. <laughs> All
0: right, so Detective Hornoff investigated Becky's past and found that she had nothing to hide. She had goals and dreams and she was working towards those and um, she wanted to provide the best for her kids. So she worked hard. She wasn't a party girl. She and her ex-husband had a friendly relationship and they got along well. They shared parenting duties for their young children who were eight and four years old at the time. Police canvassed the neighborhoods, collected evidence, praying that whoever did this wasn't someone who was actually watching or standing there. And it turns out that, yeah, that person was. Uh, None of the evidence revealed the identity of Rebecca Spencer's killer. Like, I don't think they found hairs or blood droplets or, you know, there was no evidence left at the scene. They did know that the person was a strong person, most likely male, because this person stabbed her 58 times in her own home while she was sleeping with her own kitchen knives. Police believe that she had dozed off in front of the TV, but was stunned out of a deep sleep by an intruder. It was obvious that she had fought hard for her life and it took her a while to die. So no, uh, she didn't She didn't die quickly.
1: Well, there goes uh, that theory. So yeah. I was thinking maybe that's why no one heard her screaming, but... I don't know This right. hear me screaming in here.
0: Um, it was like the one, oh or the nanny, and I can't remember that sweet girl's name. Um, but, you know, she bled out too at the bottom of the stairs on that Craigslist killer. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it can take a while
1: for you to bleed out on,
0: you know, if you're not.
1: Depending on where you're cut. Right. Yeah.
0: So she did fight hard. It was savage. I mean, her murder was brutal, and a lot of police say this stuck with them for years afterward especially the lead detective, Detective Hornoff. In that book by Denise Lang, she wrote that he was deeply affected by the crime scene and the sense of overkill. He found himself lying to her family to protect their sensibilities. Mm. He couldn't bear to be honest about the savagery he saw. So he didn't tell them, you know, I think he told them, you know, she died instantly. And
1: yeah, because he couldn't Mm.
0: bear for them to ever have that in their head.
1: You know, and I've heard other, stories or um you know where they've told them yes your loved one died immediately they didn't suffer but you know they get the, the autopsy report mm-hmm. and they probably read it and they probably determine yeah I think they But
0: also, you know, people I think police can read people who are who are ready for that information and those who aren't, you know. Yeah. Like when my mom when my mom got sick, I wanted to know what was her prognosis, what are her chances. And my mom said, if it's bad, don't tell me. I don't want to know. She never would have read anything. So I think when your brain is ready to allow that, then maybe you would order the autopsy results. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so police, yeah, police investigated this. They they took every lead. They investigated every tip. They went door to door to the neighbors, all, I mean, all the time. And after several months, they had no leads or evidence and the case started going cold. Detective Hornoff was still on the case, but he had other things going on, so he couldn't devote a whole lot of time to it. A couple of years later, a reporter interviewed Rich White, who was a man who lived in the neighborhood and the reporter asked Rich White about the Spencer murder and White told him there was a family that lived across the street from Carl and his sister, Becky. And I think they still live there. They called police and said there's a black man in the bushes looking in the window of Rebecca Spencer's house. White also said um, that he never knew any follow-up, and then a couple weeks after, she was murdered.
1: Oh, damn. Yeah,
0: and so I don't know if the police followed this up or if there was actually a call or not, but two years later, they still had no leads on Rebecca's murder. But then at around 5 a.m. on Monday, September 4th, 1989, they get a call, a 911 call from Marie Bouchard, She needs immediate police assistance. Her daughter and granddaughters were dead and covered in blood. Oh, Lord. Bashar Bashar told police that she had seen her daughter and granddaughters a few days before on September 1st. They had gone school shopping and had planned to get together on Labor Day. But by September 4th, Joan and her daughter, Joan's family, became worried about her and the girls because they had not heard from her. And that was not usual. They usually heard from her every day. So after a couple days, you know, they get worried. Yeah. Joan's mom, Marie Bouchard, and um, Joan's other sister, Mary Lou, drove to the Heaton home to check on Joan and the girls. When they got there, they saw Joan's car in the driveway. The curtains were still shut. And Joan was always, you know, she got up, she opened the curtains. They knocked on the door. No one answered. And they're like, okay, something's going on. They're not answering our calls. They're not answering the door. Their car is here. The blinds are down. What is going on? So... They found that strange and went to the back of the house. They had a key to get in the back door, and they used it. And upon entering, Marie and Mary Lou first smelled a rancid smell, and then they saw blood spatter on the walls. They found Joan's body in the hallway covered by a sheet, and then Jennifer's body lay close to her mom's, and Melissa lay alone in the kitchen.
1: And did you tell me how old?
0: Yeah, I'm going to tell you in just a minute. Okay. Um, they're eight and ten. I believe Jennifer is ten, and Melissa is
1: eight. So it's granddaughters.
0: It's it's so Joan is her daughter, and then her two granddaughters.
1: Okay, I missed so Joan and
0: her two daughters are Marie's daughter, daughter and, and granddaughters.
1: Okay, I missed that there were two granddaughters. Okay. Two granddaughters. Okay, sorry.
0: All right. Um, so they called nine one one and immediately went out to sit on the porch until police arrived. When police arrived, they found Marie and Mary Lou in great distress on the porch and Marie told them it's bad. Mm. Um, did tape off the house in crime scene tape, which was like a deja vu of Becky Spencer's murder two years before it was, this was only like a couple houses down from that. Still, okay. um, I found one where it was actually two doors down and then I saw another one where it was like four doors down. So I'm not real sure how close they were, but they're on the same block. Right. Yeah. on inez avenue or inez however. that's crazy
1: mm-hmm. that that is i mean it's bad enough if you have a serial killer in your town let alone right. in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood. Or on your street you and, know
0: and that's exactly what happened in this neighborhood that's right? chaos so when first responders Ooh. got there they went inside and they were hit by that rancid smelling i mean they knew immediately that this was death yeah oh. then they came upon a gruesome scene they found three dead bodies two of which were covered in um They were covered and I'm gonna say bloody sheets. I'm not sure what they were covered with, but they were white and the um, the picture I saw looked like sheets. So I'm just saying sheets. Wow.
1: That's Uh, to me that's like why did they
0: Well, that's interesting that you say that. You're asking why were they covered?
1: Yeah, because usually that's like what what you
0: you know in your amateur
1: and your amateur investigative skills. Yes. And just listen to enough true crime and stuff like podcasts, stuff like that, to know that if they were covered, then that's like a they ashamed or knew themselves, knew the person or whatever.
0: Right. I'm pretty sure that I addressed that later on. And if I don't remind me of it, because I meant to put it in here, but like I said, this one was so long, like I had to taper down some of the information. Okay. But what they do know is that they were covered and yes, they do address that later, what what you're thinking. Joan Heaton was 39. Melissa Heaton was eight and Jennifer was 10 and they had been butchered to death. (sighs) They all showed signs of putting up a fight. Marie Bouchard, and that's the grandmother. uh, Her daughter and granddaughters were gone. The Heaton home was only a few doors down from the home Becky Spencer was murdered in two two years before. So, of course, everybody's going, okay, these have to be related. These murders have to be related.
1: Oh, my God. What a nightmare. I'd be a basket case. Well, yeah. And, you know, this is interesting and this is something that I
0: left out that I want to make sure that I address. Mm-hmm. This might have to be a two-parter. I don't know. But at the end, like Rebecca's family did, they went one direction and then Joan's family went another direction, but they do- both did something positive, like fighting for the death. So I want to make sure I, I address that later. But Okay. So a police also look into Joan's background, and again, like Becky Spencer, they found nothing incriminating. Joan had married and begun a family with Sergeant John J. Heaton when they were both young. They welcomed Jennifer in 1979 and Melissa in 1981, and life seemed perfect until June 19, 1983, when Joan came home and found her husband hanging from a rafter in their basement. Oh, good grief. Right. He had committed suicide by hanging himself. Of course, she was devastated and wanted to get the hell out of that house that she had shared with him. So she, sh- she, you know, this is a house he killed himself in and she needed a fresh start. So she sold that house and moved to the Buttonwoods neighborhood where they settled in and lived peacefully. Oh. But you know, this was, um, they, they married fairly early. I mean, I'm wondering if this is like, like Vietnam or. You know,
1: Possibly. V- yeah.
0: Um, because, well, when did Vietnam, when did they start bringing all, all those guys home? Like 72 or something? You're the history expert.
1: Um, well, I mean, they were still bringing people home, like well into the late seventies even. Okay. Like, so, I mean,
0: that's just a possibility. You know, what, what we know about PTSD and, you know, the 22 a day, it's just like, okay, yeah. he thought she had this perfect ideal, you know, well, who knows what she was going through. We don't know. But like
1: Jonathan's dad was drafted. His brother what year was that i'm trying to think because his brother was born in 69 so he was okay. so older yeah i'm trying to think if i think mark was born when big mark was gone though okay. i'm pretty sure
0: I, i'm just curious if that you know i was thinking i always think soldiers hanging themselves like it's got to be war related i mean i guess it doesn't have to be but to me that's my association with it. Well,
1: we, and we we're just going there because of the years that it, that it was. Cause it was, yes. It and was I didn't do any on research
0: it. on that because this is so deep anyway. And it was like a rabbit hole, but it is interesting. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, maybe I'll look it up and do a blog on it. I don't know. All right. Well, Rebecca was, mur- when Rebecca was murdered, many people believed that it was for a reason. You know, she's single. It must've been someone she knew mostly because nobody else had been attacked at the time of the murder. And she had only been living in the area for a little under a year. So she wasn't well known there. However, when Joan, Jennifer and Melissa were murdered, then people started getting scared. There's a serial killer on the loose in
1: Warwick. Yeah, it's just too close for comfort.
0: Right. Both single moms had been stabbed viciously in their homes with their own knives in the same frenzied manner. And police knew that the murders were too similar to have been committed by different offenders. Rebecca's home was only a few houses down, again, from the Heaton's wow so police and detectives went into full-time mode in their search for the killer or killers warwick that's that's hard to say warwick 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 rhode island citizens especially those who lived in the buttonwoods neighborhood were in an uproar supposedly gun sales were up home security systems were being installed and women were, were refusing to stay home alone everyone was scared and police were on like you know double time Mm -hmm. policing this neighborhood detective bill mcdonald reached out to fbi profiler greg mccrary to get some advice on the criminal profile of the killer he's like one of the head uh, mind hunters he's written a couple of books yeah yeah but he did not feel comfortable uh, mccrary did not feel comfortable advising in such a manner because normal operating procedures called for them inviting the fbi in murder murder FBI spending time at the crime scene, analyzing autopsy results and studying police reports before he could establish a profile of the killer. But McDonald's like, look, you know, p- our people are frightened. So any advice about a pattern of a certain type of killer would be helpful for us. Wow. McCrary's like, you know, I don't know. And then McDonald's like, look, we had a similar murder two years ago. And then McCrary like, okay, well, that, that solidifies things for me because I'm confident that this is a serial killer. Wow. So he went ahead um against his better judgment and gave them some possible clues of what to look for and the first thing he said was you know the murders of the heatons were frenzied and it was possible that the murderer in his anger and rage might have sliced his own hand on a broken blade because i didn't tell you that um, they had a broken a bl- oh, excuse me a five inch blade broke in melissa's neck so he advised so they you know he's saying most likely when that broke the killer probably you know, sliced his hand oh, yeah very easily he advised police to look out for an individual with a bandage on his arm or hand he also said that the killer was someone from the neighborhood probably within walking distance and he was most likely white since murderers like this rarely break racial lines and i don't know how true this still is this was back in 97 is that still true i would hmm. and when we look at some of the people that you did like you've done a couple serial killers it was not it did not break racial lines
1: no they usually have a type so yeah. if it does break racial lines then it's usually all the people are of the same race that they're killing okay okay but i mean not always but i mean like even the even the common ones that we can think of right off the bat like ted bundy and well, right uh, or gacy and like and the, and
0: the two guys you did you did one that was in michigan i can't remember their name, carl somebody is that the one that right. to be called uh you did the one where the man and the woman Coral Coral yeah Coral right. Watts yeah. yeah all right so McCrary also said that he believed the killer most likely had interacted with Joan and or, and or her daughters on the day of the murders hmm. he said judging by the violence of the killings the killer was probably in his very early 20s As indicated by the overkill because someone at that point can get so enraged enough to stab over and over again vicious enough to break several knives kick nick several bones and break a blade off into the neck of a little girl is like that shows lack of self-control so young each victim had been stabbed anywhere from 30 to 60 times they were savagely beaten bitten and strangled one of the girls had her head crushed by a metal kitchen stool mccrary told mcdonald that this killer indulged in overkill indicating a truly hostile and predatory personality mccrary also said that the killer most likely knew the victims because he covered them up voila Mm
1: -hmm.
0: he didn't want to have to look at what he had done that's what mccrary said
1: i wonder so base i try not to think ahead and like think Well, is it because he he couldn't control himself, so to release whatever craziness in his mind, he had to, like, get it out? Okay. That's interesting.
0: All right. So based on McCrary's profile, the Warwick police had something to look for. Someone from the neighborhood, a strong white male within walking distance of the Heaton home, somebody with a history of problems with the law, because he did say that. This person has had issues with the law. And then he said, somebody probably has a cut on one of his hands. McCrary stated that the frenzied state in the midst of a violent crime such as this one often results in the killer cutting himself, leaving blood evidence on the scene. This was true. The killer had left his blood and police called in Dr. Henry Lee. Oh, right. Yeah. He's one of the top, uh, the country's top medical examiners. He like worked on OJ and like a lot of big name crimes. Wow. So they called him in to work the crime scene. Dr. Lee analyzed the blood splatters on the walls and floors, and he found a bloody footprint on the scene. Dr. Lee determined that the killer had a size 13 foot and was wearing socks, not shoes, when he made the bloodied footprint. Ew. Police knew that they were looking for a big white guy from the neighborhood with big feet, a bandage, and a history of crime. So they have a little bit to look for.
1: Hmm. I'm wondering if that, like, if someone would stand right out you know, if they put that news out to the, to the neighborhood they're like, oh yeah, we know that it is. Or if yeah, it, they, you it, know, they didn't, it.
0: um, they got this within 10 days, they found the killer.
1: Oh, okay. I don't know if
0: I said that. I don't know if I said that. I may have. It was less than two weeks. Wow. So the uh, police officers are crawling through this neighborhood, including two guys, Ray Pendergast and Mark Brandreth, who were patrolling the area around Masonic Park, which is in this neighborhood. And Pendergast saw a kid that he knew from the Police Athletic League basketball team. He used to coach. It's kind of like the rec leagues, you know. Yeah. And, um, he used to be coached. So he knew this kid. The kid was 15-year-old Craig Price, who had played for a short time also on the high school football team before getting kicked off for bad grades.
1: So What's Dr. That? Lee, Henry Henry Lee, Uh huh. he also did the Jean Bonnet.
0: Did he? Yeah.
1: He does a lot. He he was saying, like, I read something that he
0: said and he does, you know, he's done a lot of big name ones, but Mm -hmm. to him, even the ones that don't have a voice, those are just as important to him, if not more. Because
1: Because a lot of times people don't have the money behind, you know, that. Right. Right. Oh, he also (laughs) did the the Michael Peterson one, the one that was in like Uh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Is that the one
0: where wait i always michael peterson is he the one that was a cop that killed his wife
1: no but that guy's name was peterson is that
0: the one whose girl whose wife got killed by they think an owl
1: well yeah i mean that's one of the
0: theories that an owl i don't know i think i believe that theory but that's a different murder yeah
1: yeah, but that the same yeah the same one he's also done he um worked on the early stages of kaylee anthony michael peterson um people i don't know
0: yeah he's even got his own like show on discovery yeah. or one of those play- one he of those. Did,
1: um, this is what it says he worked on famous cases cases such as Jean bonnet ramsey helen or heli crafts woodchipper murder mm,
0: that's interesting
1: yep put that one in your pocket <laughs> um the oj simpson lacey peterson um post 9-11 forensic investigations the dc sniper shootings and he mm-hmm. reinvestigated the assassination of JFK.
0: He's pretty, he's, he's definitely an expert, well-renowned in this
1: field. Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay. So, so back to the cops crawling through this neighborhood and they see this 15 year old kid named Craig Price. And they're like, you know, um, let's just have a talk to this kid. You know, he's kind of a street kid lately. He's been running around, um, breaking the law. Maybe he was out, you know, maybe he's out and about and his, and saw something. So when they pulled over to talk to him it wasn't as a possible suspect but more as a source of info because he was a street kid i mean he wasn't like a street kid out on the streets because he had parents and had his own home and everything but he kind of like ran the streets right it was yeah. the 80s yeah it was the 80s
1: it was the 80s we were all running the streets
0: <laughs> don't come back so to while it. they were talking to him the officers noticed that he had a bandage on his hand they asked him about the injury and. Craig Price calmly told them that he had gotten drunk the other night, the night before, and was walking down the street on Kessler or Kiesler Boulevard, is a street nearby, and he punched out a car window to steal something out of it and cut his hand. And the officers spoke a few more minutes with Craig before heading back to the station. Brandreth was the other cop who didn't know Craig Price. He looked at Pendergast, who used to be the coach, and he said, "Man, that kid fucking did it." He's killed all of them. But Pendergast is like, no way. You know, first, Price is black. He's not white. Oh, so, no. And he's only 15. He's not in his 20s. He did not fit the profile as far as those things went. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he did have the numerous run-ins with the law. At around nine years old, Craig had begun having deep thoughts about people dying. And because of that, his violent behavior, behavior began to escalate. Police later reported that they had been called to Craig's family home on an occasion after a family dispute got out of hand and that Craig would frequently get into trouble. So during that, like he threw uh, something at his sister, like his parents had called the cops on him once or twice. That's scary. Craig already had numerous warnings um, for things that he did outside the home, like for stalking and peeping through windows of women in the neighborhood. And And by 13, he had charges such as breaking and entering, Robbery, stalking, drug use, and assault.
1: By 15? Is that That what you said? That was by
0: 13. By 13? Yeah. Despite these crimes, many people in the neighborhood remember him as being a good kid. Like he was good, humored, friendly, happy. He was always willing to help a neighbor. He was always quick with a smile or a joke. Like he was just the fun guy to hang out with. He did start hanging out with an older crowd who was doing drugs. They played like heavy metal rock and roll. And you know, they led a life of crime, like car breaking and entering into cars and breaking, and entering into homes. They actually, uh, used Craig because of his size, because he was like six four, two hundred fifty 250 pounds at 15 Always, years
1: old.
0: Yeah. No, he was. Yeah. He was yeah.
1: My son was like that. My baby. Oh, that's like the size of one of my kids, like my kids like a leg. <laughs>
0: yeah. His other friends had previous convictions and as a group that they would often break into homes and cars to sell VCRs, money, jewelry, and more. Craig began drinking alcohol, smoking pot, and tripping on acid and because he was 6'4", like I said, weighing in at around 250 pounds, he was kind of the muscle kicking open doors for his friend. Anyway, Brandreth and Pendergast went back to the, uh, they went back to the cop shop or whatever you're calling it and they decided to follow up. So They conducted a search for car damage reports on the street that Craig mentioned, and no one had reported a smashed car window. And they went to the street and they looked, uh, they walked up and down it a few times and they saw no evidence of glass at all on the street. Hmm. And then they thought, well, maybe it's a different street. So they went up and down all the neighborhood streets to see if anyone had, and it was a Ford probe and no one owned a Ford probe and no one had reported anything broken. So... You know, that was kind of a, a, a red
1: flag. Right. Yeah.
0: They talked to another detective who was familiar with Craig's other, uh, law breaking incidents. And she told Pendergrass and Brenda that Craig Price would never in a million years admit to breaking into a car. So just that story itself was fishy. Oh, she's like, he would, if he did it, he would never tell you that ever. Police immediately realized that Craig had not told them the truth. A further background check into Craig showed that the majority of his crimes were for stalking and breaking and entering, and though police had their doubts that the killer was Craig Price because he was so young, 15 at this, um, at this time, and then only 13 two years before at the time of Becky's murder, there were just too many previous convictions and lies and too many red flags. Yeah, they have to look into
1: it. That's yeah. what.
0: So they made a call to Greg McCrary and that's the guy, the FBI guy who, you know, said that it's going to be a white guy and they're, you know, what, okay. So this isn't a white guy. Could you possibly be wrong? And what Greg McCrary learned was that Price had been raised in the white neighborhood. He only hung out with white friends, like his parents. And I think I talk a little bit more about his parents, but his mom worked three jobs and his dad had a job as a supervisor at the Pepsi company um, where they were able to live in this neighborhood and provide what they thought was the best for their children.
1: So sad. You know, his parents are like doing everything they can to give him the best life. And he's still. Right. He's just kind of turned bad. Yeah. his poor parents. So anyway, McCrary's like, sure. You know, if he'd been raised
0: in the white neighborhood and only hung out with white, white friends then that crossing of racial lines could be, that could be wrong. You know, he identifies with, with the white, Um, culture i guess Uh, but they didn't have any evidence for a search warrant so right now this is just a theory at least they didn't have any any reason for a warrant right away but according to one source uh, in the days following the heat and murders a friend of craig's contacted the police and told him about how craig had bragged about murdering becky spencer two years ago he's like yeah you know i didn't take it seriously but he told me he you know he he killed her so with that information police were able to Produce or to obtain a search warrant for his residence.
1: I mean, why would I mean I I as if, as a kid, if someone said, "Yeah, I killed somebody," at thirteen years old, I don't think I would take that seriously. Or fifteen years old, no, I would. You yeah, you, you absolutely wouldn't. wouldn't.
0: At about five a.m., before five, it was just before five a.m., September seventh, nineteen eighty nine. Police raided the Price home, forcing the Price family to get out of bed and sit on the living room couch while they searched the residence inside and out. I mean, could you imagine? No. I mean, the family was, I mean the dad was freaking out. The dad was home, had been home from work. I, I can't remember if he had like back surgery or something wrong with his heart, but he, he had some health issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Damn.
0: The home was thoroughly searched for any piece of evidence that could suggest Price's involvement. During the police search, Craig's family was scared to death, and but he was on the couch able to fall asleep police searched a shed in the backyard and there they found a plastic bag that had just been tossed toward the back and inside the bag they found numerous bloody knives bloody clothes a large bloody sock that matched the footprint gloves gloves and other items Jeez. craig price was immediately arrested and his mother who escorted him to the police station sobbed all the way there Craig himself appeared to be unfazed by the arrest and remained normal and passive throughout his confession. Yes, he confessed. Oh, freaky. His parents said, You need to tell the truth. And so he did. Damn. His dad had to leave the room to vomit and he never came back to the interrogation room to hear the rest of the details. On the recording, Craig Price mimicked the cries of the young girls and. You know, he, his, his recording was described as chilling and cold, but this is what he had to
1: say. Oh, Lord.
0: He said that on September 1st, 1989, he smoked some pot and took some acid and found himself outside the Heaton's home. Craig told police that he climbed through the kitchen window, landing on and breaking a table, which woke up 39-year-old Joan, who came into the kitchen to investigate. When she turned on the light, she saw Craig in her kitchen and she screamed. Craig worried about being caught, used his weight to strangle her. After she slunk to the floor, he grabbed a knife, which she had just purchased that day. She, she got one of those, um, you know, those butcher blocks that all the knives are in. Mm-hmm. So he, she had just bought it that day. I mean, so ironic. Oh. Anyway, he stabbed Joan Heaton 57 times, which is similar to the number of wounds on Becky Spencer. Her screams woke her daughter's. Who ran out of their rooms to see what was going on? Craig saw 10 year old Jennifer first and ran out and lunged at her, stabbing her a total of 62 times. As she was being stabbed, she was yelling at her sister, crying, begging her sister, get to the phone, call 911. Melissa, who was only eight, ran into the kitchen towards the phone. Craig overpowered her, stabbing her 30 times before grabbing a metal stool and using it to crush her skull.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: The force and brutality of the stabbings were shocking. He used such violence and frenzy that a knife blade snapped off in Melissa's neck. And I think it was like a five inch knife blade. Then he covered up two of the bodies before grabbing everything that he had with him and heading out of the back door, jumping fences to get home. He threw the bag of stuff in the shed, ran into the house, took off his bloody clothes, put them in a bag and threw that
1: bag in the attic. So it was all very frenzied and enraged. Jeez. I wonder if he's like shown any kind of like hostility at home.
0: Well, like, he, like I said, his parents had, ha, had, they, had a yeah. call. you know, they have no control over him. He's doing drugs. He's out late at night. He, now he was, he had, he was in some sort of rock band. So they had kids over a lot. You know, they were one of those families that all the kids went over, but Damn. apparently like the basement was kind of like that 70s show where, you know, they would hang out and smoke pot and drink and play music and stuff Jeez. when police asked about becky spencer's murder craig price at first denied having anything to do with it but it wasn't long before he finally told them what happened craig said that racism led to his anger and in turn murder actually in both cases and i think i mentioned this late craig told police that he had once been playing outside on the street with his friends when a man screamed at him to get out of the road and called him an n-word Craig felt very angry angry and humiliated by this comment, but was angrier at himself for not sticking up for himself, and he vowed revenge on the man. Craig then told police that he watched the car pull up outside Becky Spencer's home. The man Craig was talking about was her brother, Carl. Damn. Carl reported that he had seen the children, but he had not screamed or shouted or even said anything remotely racist to the group. Craig, who was 13 at the time, told police that on the night of Rebecca's murder, he made sure his mom, dad, and brother were asleep before he stuck out of the house. He said his sister wasn't home. She would spend the night with a friend. He told police that he jumped the fence of his neighbor's backyard and over the fence into Becky's home, but he was disappointed because the car wasn't there. He said he went home to smoke some pot. After getting high, he went back out to burglarize the home, but as he looked through the window, he noticed the TV was on and a head was under a blanket on the floor. He decided that he would go in and kill the woman instead. When police asked what else he had seen in the house, Craig told them he saw a bunch of cardboard boxes, proving he had been there that night. Price, a peeping Tom, told police that he had watched the young mother on several occasions from several vantage points.
1: Which, there was the 911 call. Yes. That was a black man. Right. Watching his, through the. And he's big Mm -hmm. enough to look like a man, even though I mean, he's, he's, he's
0: got a baby face and, um, yeah, but at night and you just look at, him at across the road, yeah, it looks like a man. Yes. So 13 year old Craig took his opportunity and snuck into the home through the unlocked back door while in the kitchen. He said he first picked up a frying pan before he decided to grab a 10 inch kitchen knife. And there are a couple of different things. I also read that he grabbed a packing knife that was near her. So, um, I'm going to go with a 10 inch knife and I don't know why, but. Okay. I
1: am a packing knife. Would that be a like packing a knife? I'm yeah.
0: thinking like a, like one of those razors razor razor,
1: so, razor razor knife or whatever they're yeah called. the
0: razor knife. So maybe he did both. I don't know, but she has some deep stab wounds, which is, I think why I'm going with a 10 inch knife,
1: a box cutter. That's what I'm thinking. And, and you know
0: what? You're like, you know, when you get the stuff from yes, box cutter, when you get the stuff from newspapers.com, you sometimes you find a lot of inconsistencies, you know,
1: newspapers yeah. for you.
0: Right. Yeah as he headed into the living room he said he stood over becky spencer for a moment hypnotized by the television which played in the background he then said that he repeatedly stabbed um rebecca spencer and he did 58 times
1: god she's so young i mean not that being old matters but she was only 27 right according to law enforcement price showed no remorse when he confessed to these
0: crimes as for the motive he later told a journalist that he believes exposure to racism by whites as a young child was a factor in the murders citing that the first time he wanted someone to die was when he was a child and a group of white adults shouted racial slurs at him and tried to run him over with their car good lord and speaking to this reporter price said that he believes his reason for targeting becky was purely down to the hatred and anger he felt towards her brother who Price still claims called him the N-word. In addition, he said that one of the Heaton girls needed help fixing her bike. So they were riding their bikes in the neighborhood and he was riding along and saw them. And the little girl, there was something wrong with her bike, like her chain or a tire or something like that. And when he stopped to help, her mom acted frightened of him. And of course, it's because he is black. So this is why he thinks he decided to kill them. He said his rage was compounded when his friends went to a party that night and he wasn't invited because he was black. The guy that was having the party was a racist. Mm-hmm. Price told the reporters that he once became so enraged about something that he almost squeezed his cat to death. He said he stopped himself just in time because he loved his cat. So when he gets this anger and this rage, you know, he just wants to like kill. Golly, That's what releases the anger and rage.
1: But how did he figure that out? I
0: what? mean, I think that you just get so enraged
1: and then you get a hold of the cat or something you just start squeezing. Oh, no. And i are like, oh, no. Yeah. And then he realized, oh, that was almost like like yeah. a climax. Right.
0: Of- anyway, after his confession, he told police where they would find his bloody clothes and a garbage bag in his attic. He was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and two counts of burglary. Prosecutors had blood and other evidence and a confession. The case was a slam dunk. At the time of his arrest, Craig was almost 16. His lawyers convinced him that his best defense would be to confess because the murders happened before he turned 16. He would only have to serve prison time until he turned 21 with a release date in 1994. So instead of pleading not guilty and taking the chance of receiving life sentences for this horrendous crime, Craig could confess and only have to serve six years, less than six years. And upon his release, his criminal record would be sealed. I mean, honestly, that's a no brainer, right? So Craig and his parents knew it, and on September 21st, yeah, (laughs) it is frightening, and okay, um, this story is not over by any means. Oh, Lord. On September 21st, 1989, Craig pled guilty and was ordered to a training school for youth offenders. That's like their juvenile hall, whatever. Okay. Juvenile prison. And this is where he would have psychological examinations and therapy. On his way out of the courthouse to the training school, a reporter snapped a shot of Price, a photo of Price, waving to a bunch of his friends who came to see him, and he had this great big smile. Another journalist caught him on tape, yelling to his friends that he would be ready to smoke a bomber when he got out at 21. Oh, good grief. Now, a bomber, I had to look it up. I had no idea what a bomber was. I don't know this lingo, do you? No. Bomber? I guess it's a bad (laughs) Yeah, I guess a spleef. A, I don't know what do you call him. I don't know. Bomber. I don't know, about pothead friends out there. If you know what's a bomber, yeah, well, then. An <laughs> okay. Anyway, I think his attitude and lack of remorse really pissed people off. And a lot of key people did their best to make sure that he stayed in the public eye because if he's going to get out, they wanted Rhode Islanders and the rest of the country to know just how dangerous price could be if he was ever released Hmm, yeah they they also did their best to ensure that he never got out as a matter of fact his initial date of release was october eleventh, nineteen 1994 it is now december 24th 2020 and price is still in prison good so here's a quick rundown of why now you say good and a lot of people would say yeah that's good but his constitutional rights were deprived he was deprived of, his, and you roll your eyes, mm-hmm. but we have a constitution and we have laws. And I feel like, you know, his, he was deprived of his constitutional right, even though
1: okay.
0: he it's should awful. be in prison.
1: What, okay, so what was, was the violation? At, say it again. What was the the violation? Okay. So he was supposed to get out at
0: 21, right? Uh-huh. So here's a quick rundown of why he didn't. Okay. Lots of reasons. So first, upon advice from his attorneys, Craig refused any form of therapy and treatment because his attorney said that if they diagnose you with a mental illness, then they could transfer you to a health, a mental health facility and keep you locked up until you get better. And there's a chance that he'll never get better, right? right. So he chose not, at the advice of his attorneys, chose not to take part in any treatment which was court ordered, which led to contempt of court charges. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. And, and in the meantime, there's a small group of people formed a group called Corp, C O R P, which stands for Citizens Opposed to the Release of Price. They, I'm going to leave it to you to decide if they were successful. <laughs> but the Corp, um, one of the, it, it was four main people. One of them was uh, Marie Bouchard. And a couple of the other attorneys involved, and they they spent money on billboards, and you know, write your congressman. They they lobby. They actually cornered Bill Clinton when he got off a plane in um, in Rhode Island, and, and asked him if it was fair that you know, a serial killer should be let loose in the neighborhoods and people not know. And he says, "No, that's not right." So he kind of like
1: got he sucked have- into that yeah. that
0: issue without knowing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right. In the meantime, in 1990, Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Pine and Detective Kevin Collins pushed the Rhode Island government into passing the O'Neill Bill, which imposed harsher sentences for teenage murderers. These men did not want Price back on the streets where he could easily strike again. But of course, this law cannot be used retroactively against Price, right. and it was not enough to keep him behind bars. They knew the da- Pine knew the dangers a loose price. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Pine was, um, uh, the attorney general, assistant attorney general. Okay. He knew the dangers, a loose price could impose on a community. So he went to Quantico to the FBI training quarters to learn more about Price's offender profile. And while there, Pine learned that less than 1% of killers are frenzied killers like Craig. And I looked up frenzied killers, like that's an FBI terminology, but there's not a whole lot of research done on frenzied killers. Okay. Um, they cannot be there is no effective treatment that exists to treat them like he's going to be a danger anytime he gets angry Yeah, yeah murderous so with this information pine returned to court where price was ordered to undergo psychological testing but upon the advice of his attorneys he openly refused to comply again when he would speak with doctors because he would pretend he would lie and tell them what they wanted to hear or he would just refuse to cooperate at all so because of these refusals, Pine filed contempt of court charges in 1994 and Price got more time to a sentence. Okay. okay.
1: Doesn't now sound like was, a constitutional violation to me. Okay, not yet. Okay, okay. Okay. I mean, to me, if somebody is
0: 16 and they do a crime like that, like you can't make up laws to keep them in.
1: No no but if he really was in contempt because he was told to do something the court told him to get this treatment and he's refusing it i mean that is i mean i think it's
0: a fine line like to me i feel like they contrived stuff to keep him in i mean i'm glad they did i'm not saying that i'm not glad they didn't but Mm -hmm. you know if it to me it's just you know if if that's your sentence that's
1: your sentence i mean if you served your time you served your time yeah
0: because he was a model prisoner at first He gained privileges that many did not believe a murderer should get. So once he was in this training school, like he was a role model and he, he did things that would give him more privileges and the community's like, no, he should be locked up. Mm -hmm. He shouldn't get privileges. He really shouldn't have been put in that, that facility, honestly. Right. He should have. So, but when Price saw something as being unfair, he would openly lash out. Once he threatened to kill a correctional officer after the officer wrote him up for having a lighter and cigarettes. Pine jumped on the threat and pressed charges. After all, threatening to murder again was a perfect reason to keep him in jail. Price was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in prison, eight of which would be suspended for good behavior. Pine and other Rhode Islanders were relieved because he would not be released when he was 21. Now, many say that that was contrived, that he didn't really threaten to murder anyone. And there were witnesses that testified that too. Price's violent behavior in jail escalated on numerous occasions, and since 1996, more years were added to his sentence. In 1996, he bit the finger of an officer and was given an additional year, and in 1997, he was charged with criminal contempt for not complying with psychological examinations ordered by the state again, and he was given an additional 25 years to his sentence, 15 of which were probation. In 1998, he again assaulted another officer and gained another seven years on a sentence. In 1999 and 2001, he verbally and physically attacked an officer and gained another four years. So he's just violent in prison too.
1: Yeah. And he's just racking them up and they're throwing the book at him. They're not That's even- right.
0: Every little, every little thing. And I'm sure, you know, like what they were saying was the first incident that was kind of like trumped up to seem a lot worse than it was. Because they were looking for anything to keep him in. And then I guess he's just getting angrier and angrier along the way. Right. In 2004, Price was transferred from Rhode Island to Santa Rosa County, Florida in Milton to serve his prison time. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> the Rhode Island prison system was ill-equipped to handle Price's violent tendencies. And they, um, so they shackled him up and sent him to Florida to serve out the rest of his time. I mean, if you want somebody to get in trouble in a prison, just send him to Florida.
1: Yeah, but they play, they don't play games here, either.
0: So Price was denied parole in March 2009, but his release date was set for May 2020, which frightened a lot of Rhode Islanders. But of course, they didn't need to fear because the Craig Prices of the world cannot stay out of trouble long enough to get free. This is true. On July 29, 2009, Craig, armed with a shank, got into a prison fight with another inmate. While trying to break up the fight, one of the correctional officers was stabbed in the finger by the handmade shank. No. After the prison fight, Price was transferred to the Sewanee Correctional Institute in, the, in Live Oak, Florida. Live Oak.
1: Oh, that's outside. Over of the city. years,
0: yeah, over the years, Craig Price has been productive. He earned his GED, finished as many college courses as he could. Uh, he became a master of martial arts. I, you know, he's dangerous now, even more.
1: They let them do that? I, really? I let don't them, know. I guess violent criminals take martial arts in prison.
0: I yeah, I don't know where. I don't know where he learned that. It's just something I I watched on an interview. Yeah. Huh. It's kind of scary. Um, he was also he also became very well versed in the law. So you know, he knew when somebody was violating somebody else's rights, and he would offer advice to his friends or whatever. He also argued and has tried for numerous appeals that his civil rights have been violated because he was not released when he was supposed to be and that the charges against him over the years were trumped up to keep him incarcerated.
1: So the prison where he is right now... Yes. um, Isn't it like Stark? Or it's across the street or across the river from Stark, I think. It's like where the execution chamber is. That's where he is now, the Florida State Prison. Okay. And that is... Yeah, that's where the execution chamber is.
0: That's yes, where the bad guys go. Well, okay. I looked it up. Rayford is the most dangerous prison.
1: Yeah. It's like well, Mary. Okay, Mary yeah. D- While Stark is the um, USPS address for the city. of Yeah, so Stark, people used to say Ted Bundy. This is where Ted Bundy was.
0: So where prices right now, that's where Ted Bundy was.
1: Yes, that's where Death Row is. That's where Death Row was. Okay, so,
0: so he's not on Death Row though.
1: No, no, All no. Right. But that's where, that's, and people call it Stark. Or the Florida State Prison. Okay. That used to,
0: you know, way back. I when- don't know too much about the Florida prison system. I mean, I'm learning more as I do these, but.
1: Eileen Warros was there. Okay.
0: So. However, okay, so so he goes there and his frenzied violence doesn't stop. On April 4th, 2017, while he was still at the Sewanee Correctional Institute, and he's still there, I don't know why I put still, but he's mm-hmm. there. He stabbed another inmate, Joshua Davis, repeatedly in the chest head back of his neck right near his spinal cord, the top of his spinal cord, and then he stabbed him in his lower spinal cord with a five-inch homemade knife. Apparently, Price believed that Davis had been poisoning his and his cellmate's food because the cellmate had been sick, and then Price had also recently fallen ill. So there is a little bit of mental illness in there, like perceived like this person's against me, you know. Price followed Davis, who had just gotten out of the shower, so he was being escorted by guards from the shower to his cell, and they were taking Price out to go take his shower when Price, I mean, you can watch this video. It was a vicious attack. Like he, he had so much speed. He's a big old guy. He's supposedly in a wheelchair and he gets up and he runs and attacks this guy. Two guards had to pull him off of Davis. And then Davis was able to run into the day room, which is like, kind of like the courtyard area. But mm-hmm. Price caught him and attacked him again before two more other guards were able to pull him off of Davis. So like I said, there is a video of this attack. And let me tell you, this dude is fast, strong, and vicious. You can watch it. On January 18th, 2019, just about a year ago, Price was sentenced to 25 years for attempted murder, premeditated murder on Joshua Davis. Davis was there. He was serving time for first degree murder. He ended up moving to a different Florida prison after the incident. But he said that he was shaken as a blitz attack. He said that they had only said about three words to each other and they never had any bad vibes or anything like that. It's like, it came from nowhere. He's like, I didn't even know this guy had a violent past because you know, I just thought he might've been in there for drug dealing or something because he he was just the nicest person. So Rhode Island right now is breathing a sigh of relief that Price is behind bars another 25 years. And they intend to charge Price with violation of probation for his troubles in the Florida prison and hopes that he will one day die in prison. So if he does get out in 25 years, he's going to go back to prison for probation violation. Um, they they hope that he'll at least die in prison or at the very least grow too old to kill again. And, you know, like I said, I, I I do believe in a way his rights were violated because, of you know, he was young, he wasn't rehabilitated the right way. I'm not sure why I feel like his rights were violated, but um, at this point, I don't think he'll get out if he does get out. i know he'll probably kill again
1: yeah so i think it's kind of one of those it's like oh yeah i mean i don't know hmm. yeah it's kind of a
0: now um becky's mom said that with her, her daughter she's learned to forgive him and really like the death of her daughter brought her closer to god so she kind of went the spiritual way and does a lot of uh counseling with other parents of victims and she went that way and then Marie Bouchard, Joan Heaton's mom, she mm-hmm. went the way of uh policy and law and uh, right. lobbying for the the bills to keep you know teen murderers in prison, give them you know charge them as adults. So yeah. and you know you
1: have how, I have a very you know complicated relationship with this yes you know, you juvenile about, yeah. system thing because uh-huh. you know, if you haven't listened to it earlier podcast. You know, I had a friend who was murdered and he was the, the guy who killed him was 17 and a half years old. And because he wasn't 18, he was 18 when he was sentenced, found guilty and sentenced. But at the time of the murder, he was 17 and a half. So because of that, his sentence was overturned. He was um, sentenced to prison for life with no chance of parole. You know, they have a checklist. Do you meet all of these things was, you know, did you have a bad child life? Did you have, you know, all of these things. And the only one that they couldn't 100% say was that he was a depraved individual. Now the act that he did, I mean, he shot my friend, they stopped counting at 13 because that's because then he set him on fire. So they know he was shot 13 times. He was set on fire and he was dragged behind a vehicle, like tied up with a rope and dragged behind. And that's pretty depraved. Right. But they can't, they can't prove that he was a depraved individual all the time. He is kind of a model citizen in prison. He doesn't get in a lot of trouble. He had like two or three violations when he was like younger, but it wasn't like he wasn't getting in fights. He was just, you know, smart off to a guard or something like that. Um, so anyway, they reduced his sentence to 50 years. So either way he's going to be, is he
0: going to have to serve every single day of that? Or does he get a chance for good behavior?
1: No, he doesn't get a chance. He has to serve 50 except for if you're a minor, in your sentence like that, every five years, they come back and reassess. For him. Sentence. For anyone who is sentenced as a minor. Okay. So something like that, like.
0: Uh, so every five years he gets his sentence re. Evaluated. re
1: So in two years, ooh, and maybe even one year, he'll have a reevaluation and he could get out. Yeah, well, and, my, and my friend's parents are still gonna be walking this earth and.
0: Yeah, that's not fair to anyone. On that, no.
1: You know, when his parents were in the courtroom, you know, the the judge, or not the judge, but the um, attorney for him was, you know, saying his parents will never have grandkids, his his children, he'll never have children. Mm -hmm. Well, neither will my friend. Right. My friend won't even have the opportunity. You know, he's dead. You know, he has nieces who've never even met him because he was killed when he was a senior in high school on Christmas day well yeah that's deep christmas day 1994
0: well i'm i'm glad that more laws are coming about now to to charge these kids as adults you know back back in their 80s and early 90s they didn't at that time they just couldn't fathom people this young committing atrocious crimes like this at all so so that's it that's all i've got for this week
1: well it was a good one thank you
0: thank you and thank you so much for listening to this week's murder we appreciate sharing our passion with you, and we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platforms. And for more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at it Wasn't Me, truecrime.com.
1: We are so grateful to spend our time together and share our murderous stories. Thank you so much for your support. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash It Wasn't Me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, It Wasn't me. Me.